Very lovely uh, to be here and thank you again to Huey and the team for uh, asking me to come along and talk about more college and then open up God's word. So let's pray together uh, and then let's get stuck in. Our Father God, we thank you uh, that you have given us such privilege to be able to uh, read your word as you speak to us through it. Uh, We thank you, Father, that your word is clear and is active and living and is sharper than a double-edged sword. And we pray now, Father, that you wouldn't just help us to understand what's being said, but then put those things into practice so that we might continue to live for the sake of your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I got a WhatsApp message uh, just very recently. uh, And the message said, you must open this. It is the key to all coronavirus issues. I don't know if you know anything about Indian people or Indian culture, but WhatsApp is a big thing. Uh, In fact, it's so big that at certain points in the day, all the servers go down for a little while because everyone texts the same thing to each other. And so I clicked on that thing, thinking, okay, well, let's see what this solution to coronavirus is. And then it gave the 11 essential juices necessary to drink in order to ensure that you never get coronavirus. And it got me thinking about the reality that sometimes things are not always appearing as they seem. I mean, it's the reality, isn't it, that sometimes we look at things and we think, oh yeah, here's the solution to something. Or we look at things and we think, oh yeah, this is very straightforward. But the reality is that they aren't. As we start to dig deeper and deeper, we see there are nuances, there are complications, there are things that make make it more difficult. In fact, as we've been hearing the teaching of Jesus about the kingdom of heaven, and as his disciples have been making their way to Jerusalem, I assume that on one hand, it would have been really, really obvious what was going on, because Jesus' teaching is very clear about it, and the kingdom of heaven is really not that hard to understand. But on the other hand, it would be so very perplexing, because it's different from what we would expect it to be. You see, the kingdom of heaven, it's an expression that Jesus uses which refers to the rule of heaven into which Jesus is calling his people. It's one of the phrases that Jesus uses for what we might now call becoming a Christian, becoming a follower of Jesus. To come into the kingdom of heaven is to become a real Christian. And Jesus' teaching as he and his disciples are walking into Jerusalem, has all flowed from one question. If you remember back to, I think, the beginning of this set of Bible study series, chapter 18, verse 1, Jesus, asked this, sorry, Jesus is asked this question, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And the reason I'm starting back there is because, and uh, at Bible College, one of our lecturers, uh, George Athos, uh, he always says this what line, he says, your best friend is always Jesus, obviously, but your second best friend when reading the Bible is context. Uh, It's very important to see because all of these things leading up will help us to see what this passage is really talking about. When the disciples ask the question, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven, what they are really asking is, who is the greatest Christian? See, lots of people are going to become Christians, but how do you know that you're a great Christian? And Jesus has said a number of things in the last couple of weeks to answer this question. He talks about status. He says when it comes to the matter of status, you need to change and become like little children. 
to even enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has also said that what matters in the kingdom of heaven is not being powerful or important, but being forgiven. He said that the kingdom of heaven is about grace. It's not about reward. And so the question I want to begin with this morning is, considering we've been looking from chapter 18 verse 1 until this point, and Jesus has been teaching about what it means or who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, I now want to ask the question, can you see the kingdom of heaven? Can you see the kingdom of heaven? I mean, does it... Does it really make sense to you, this revolutionary approach to life, where the first is last and the last is first? Where winners are losers and losers are winners? Where those who are great need to become like little children? Or in chapter 19, when we saw the rich young man, those who have great riches and power and achievements are very likely to encounter Jesus and then go home very sad. Can you see this kingdom of heaven? Does it really make sense to you? And I say this because everything's been building up and it seems like everyone should be able to figure it out. And at the very beginning of this this passage that we're looking at today, what we see is Jesus for the third time now repeating the biggest puzzle when it comes to this whole issue of the kingdom of heaven. Because you see, Jesus is identified as the king in the kingdom of heaven. And so presumably, he is undeniably the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And yet he takes his 12 closest friends, his disciples aside, as they're approaching Jerusalem. And he says, verse 18, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he'll be raised on the third day. Can you really make sense of the kingdom? And I say this because this morning, as we are just about to keep reading, we will meet someone, or a group of people, who don't make sense of the kingdom. And then astoundingly, we will also meet a group of people who really do make sense of the kingdom of heaven. Now, the someone who doesn't make sense of the kingdom of heaven is a mother and her two sons. The two sons were two disciples of Jesus, James and John. And they at least had heard and seen everything that Jesus had been doing in his earthly ministry up to this point. In particular, these disciples had heard the words that Jesus had just spoken, maybe only a few moments ago, that the Son of Man will be betrayed and condemned to death and mocked and flogged and executed once they arrive in Jerusalem. And knowing all of this, we then see chapter 20, verse 20. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, Jesus, with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. Now this is already an intriguing scene. The woman and her two sons appear to be full of sincerity. The way they approach Jesus is the exact opposite way to what the Pharisees did earlier in the passage. Do you remember at the beginning of chapter 19, the Pharisees approach Jesus and they are cocky and they are trying to find a way to fault him. But no, this family knelt before Jesus. They didn't even come like the rich young ruler. Do you remember him? He seemed sincere, but then he came and asked a bold question of the teacher. This family, they were different. 
You could say that this family came before Jesus like little children. There is humility in the way they approach Jesus, kneeling, asking for a favor. And of course, with such a humble approach, we wonder what these three people could really ask Jesus. What are they thinking as they come before Jesus? And before we actually get to the answer, and I know we just read it, so you know what they're going to say. But it is important to think about this particular situation. What if it was you in that situation? What if it was you and your family, you and your friends, you and your siblings that were kneeling before Jesus? This Jesus who you have seen do great things and teach great things and revolutionize everything up to this point. If you were there, what do you think you would have asked? Listen to what Mrs. Zebedee, James and John had to say. He said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your kingdom. And you see, this by all accounts is a very shocking request. Literally, probably a few minutes ago, Jesus explained, explained the important point to his disciples, choosing his words very carefully, drawing them aside together, that he is going to Jerusalem to suffer utter humiliation and be executed, and the Zebedee household come and ask if they can be invited to the party. And not just invited, if they can have seats of honor at the party. And again, before we laugh at this sort of stupid, ridiculous request, maybe let's pause and think, if you or I, if we were going to kneel in front of Jesus, what do you think we would ask? I wonder if we were being really, truly honest with no one around, I wonder if in that moment of honesty, we wouldn't ask of Jesus something that would in some way advance our status, enhance our understanding, raise our reputation. I wonder if we wouldn't say something or ask something that would help us be known better. The Zebedee family request was pretty shocking, but when we really think about it, if no one else was around and you didn't need to pretend and you were there kneeling in front of Jesus, whether we would really have been that much different. And so we read on, verse 22. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they say to him, We are able. After this, Maybe we are wondering if they are courageous or if they're just a bit stupid. You see, so often Jesus spoke in language that re required his hearers to really think about what they were going to say. I mean, really, what is meant from this idea of drinking this cup is that it's a metaphor drawn numerous times in the Old Testament. And I'm quite sure that this is where Jesus is drawing this metaphor from. It's a metaphor for suffering. Especially, we should note, it's a metaphor for Israel suffering under the hand of God's wrath. Listen to it in Isaiah chapter 51. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. You see, the cup that Jesus would drink, the language that he was using here, was the experience that awaited him in Jerusalem. 
That is the experience that he had just spoken about to the Zebedee family just a few minutes ago. And the person with the glimmer of insight would have at least paused, maybe had to think to themselves before answering the question, are you really able to drink this cup that I am going to drink with a very callous? Of course we are. Because you see, in doing so, they really show the blindness of what Jesus has been saying all along. These are a group of three who do not see the kingdom of heaven. And in this scene, you can almost see Jesus responding with tears in his eyes as he says, you will drink my cup. See, he knew the time would come in the very short future before James and John would know much more about what they spoke about that very day. In just a little while, the kingdom of heaven would make sense to them and they would suffer. They would suffer. James would be the first apostle to die as a martyr. It is recorded for us in the book of Acts. John would be exiled to Patmos. And if we jump forward some decades, we hear him writing in the book of Revelation these words. Revelation 1 verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner, in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You see, Jesus knew what he meant when he said that they would drink from the cup. Their request would in fact be granted, even if it was not what they were thinking. And you can see how it is, this is really quite a fascinating conversation. And it reveals the thorough misunderstanding of everything that Jesus had been saying. It shows a misunderstanding of the kingdom. And I guess in how we might put it today, it shows a thorough misunderstanding of what it really means to be a Christian. Only if you cannot see anything of what Jesus had been teaching up to this point, only if you are blind to the reality of the kingdom and what it is like, could a mother come and ask what Mrs. Zebedee asked for her boys. And again I bring it back and ask, if you were there kneeling in front of Jesus, what would you have asked? Can you really see the kingdom of heaven? However, this is of course not the end of this particular episode. The other ten disciples, they hear this conversation and the way they reacted led to even clearer words from Jesus about why the kingdom is the way it is. See verse 24, the other ten heard it and they were indignant at the two brothers. They were indignant, incensed, so thoroughly angry. Was that because they understood what Jesus had been saying since verse 18, of, uh, since verse 18 and were so horrified that two of their fellow disciples had gotten it so horribly wrong? I don't think so. They understood these things about the kingdom of heaven and therefore seen the incongruity of James and John asking to be elevated to a position of honor? I don't think so. It seems clear that their anger came from the realization that James and John got there first. Before they had a chance to think and ask the same thing. And so their indignant nature, their anger is because... They're asking the question, how dare James and John ask for the top places before we could get there and ask ourselves? See, the ten disciples were in the same case as the two. All of Jesus' closest friends. At this stage, they still could not see the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus responds first by showing them what was controlling their thinking. Here Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. You see, what he's saying is really very straightforward. This is what you are accustomed to in the world. The Gentiles here refers to the world at large, the general population, all those that don't follow Jesus. And lord it over them, I feel like seems like an over-translation. I think Jesus is talking here about a normal circumstances where rulers of this world have power over other people. That is what people in high places do. They exercise authority. They exercise power. That is the nature of a high position in this world. It is the nature of greatness in this world, by very definition, that you have people under you who listen to your command. Having people under your influence and under your authority is important in this world's structure and hierarchy. And Jesus says, you know this. This is the world in which you are living. And of course we should be able to associate with this. This is the world in which we are living. A world where status is so closely associated with power and influence and authority. If you have one, you have the other. And I take it for everyone in Sydney... There is every possibility that either you know someone who has power over you or you have power over somebody else. And it's not talking about a slave-master sort of relationship. The chief operating officer of Moore College is my boss. We can debate all sorts of things, but in the end, if he says something, I have to do it. And so I know what Jesus is talking about when he says the Gentiles lorded over them. It's not as negative as it's meant to be. It's just meant to be the reality of life. But then Jesus says to this little group, who all would belong to the kingdom, verse 26, not so with you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And undoubtedly, this is the most radical statement yet of those statements which Jesus stated ever since they asked that initial question about who would be the greatest among them. This is what he meant by becoming like a child. The no status person is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Not the one in authority. The one who serves. The last is the first in the kingdom of heaven. Not the boss. And once again, I ask each of you, does this make sense to you? Can you really see life like this? Because it seems counterintuitive to everything else the world is saying. So can you really see life like this? Jesus helps us here. He helps us by putting it into context. Here is how this sort of life can make sense because of what Jesus is asking and how it compares to verse 28. Whoever would be greatest among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, here are the important words in the discussion of the kingdom. It started in chapter 18, verse 1. 
And working through this statement, we see now the reality. The Son of Man, the title Jesus used in precisely these contexts. At one level, he's just saying the man. But he is also alluding to this important Old Testament scene that would have been very well known to his hearers. It was a vision given to Daniel, recorded in Daniel 7, the Old Testament reading today. And the scene records a figure known as one like a son of man. And this son of man is given extraordinary authority and power and dominion. And when Jesus gives the illusion of the son of man, they should have understood that he was talking about the greatest imaginable man in all of human history. The greatest human figure you ever see in the Old Testament, only ever seen in a vision and given eternal authority and power and dominion and kingdom. But listen to this. Jesus says, this son of man has come and contrary to all wildest expectations, not to be served, but to serve. Greatest in the world out there means that people serve you. If you're a boss to anyone, you know that you are higher than they are because when you give an order, they listen. But the Son of Man Himself, He did not come to be like that. The greatest man in history had no interest in being served. On the contrary, He came to serve. He came to subordinate His interests, to give up His interests in order to focus on the interests of other people. He wasn't meeting his own needs. He was meeting the needs of others. He didn't issue orders. He served. He did not exercise his God-given authority in the way that we expect the world to exercise authority. And to add to that, his service was not a trivial, painless courtesy just for the sake of it. He came to serve others. He came to serve the needs of others. Literally, He came to take his life for the needs of others. See, it's what the beginning of our passage was talking about. It is what Jesus had been trying to explain on these occasions. And those around him just did not have the eyes to see up to that point. To die for others. Jesus' service to the world would be to die for others. And you see, it's not some kind of weird heroism. That he was going to face enemies more powerful than himself. And then he would be killed. And it was not some ridiculous injustice alone. Like as though evil people would persecute such a nice and lovely man. There is much more to it. See, Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. And again, he was alluding to the Old Testament. And we could turn to a number of passages. But since we started with Isaiah 51, let's go to Isaiah 53. Starting at verse 4, surely he was born our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, the death of Jesus was for us. What our rebellion against God deserves, He bore. He took all of our guilt onto Himself. He came to serve, not to be served. 
And that is what the king of the kingdom of heaven is really like. And that is the key to really seeing the kingdom of heaven. So do you see it? The key is to see the death of Jesus. See that that becomes the paradigm, the pattern that shows us how it is that we are to live. Not being served, but serving. He has done this for you and I. And so we do it in response out of thankfulness. Now interestingly, as they get to Jericho and the last leg of their journey before they hit Jerusalem, we see something that shows us that there are people who do get it, who do understand the kingdom of heaven. See, they're only about 20 kilometers away from Jerusalem and you can bet that a large crowd were like the disciples and didn't quite understand what was going on and from that large crowd, all of a sudden, all of our attention moves to these two blind men. Verse 30, And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was coming by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And I assume the irony is meant to be very obvious here. I want to suggest that the two blind men could see what the seeing crowds couldn't see. The man on his way to Jerusalem was the Lord, the son of David, the king. And what they needed, you notice, their request was not, let one of us be on your right hand and let one of us be on your left hand. The request was, have mercy on me. Verse 31, the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. See, you look at the crowd and they're telling them to just shut up, be quiet. And you look at these two desperate men and you ask yourself, who was blind and who could see? Verse 32, stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And notice again, this is basically the same response he gave to James and John. When the Zebedee family knelt and asked a question, his response was, what do you want from me? These two blind men said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. See, my brothers and sisters in Christ, what is it that you see this morning about the kingdom of heaven? The world at large and its ways are very clear to see. It sweeps us along and it is normal. And if we can find a place of significance in this world at large, it is very likely to blind us from the kingdom of heaven. Because we think we will feel satisfied. And it's so normal for all of us. Status, authority. Why do we study hard in order to get a good job? Why do we have a good job? Well, it's either money or status. And both of them are those very things that are so counterintuitive to the kingdom of heaven. In and of themselves, they are not a problem. But there is a danger there. The rich young man proves that for us. There is a danger there. Because he went home so very sad. Because those things have a tendency to creep above the authority of the kingdom of heaven. 
But Jesus the Christ is calling us into a kingdom that we will only see if we look his way. And if we look his way, we will see the key to the kingdom is in fact himself, the son of man, the son of God, giving his life as a ransom for me and a ransom for you. And those who see, they don't say, give me a seat of honor. Those who see, they say, Lord, have mercy on me. And so the question I started and the question I leave you with is, do you see the kingdom of heaven? As you kneel before our Lord Jesus Christ, what is it that you will ask of him? Will you ask him to give you sight? To truly see the kingdom of heaven. To be assured of eternal life with God forever. Let me pray. Our Father God, we thank you uh, that you speak so clearly to us in your word, the Bible. Uh, We thank you for these words of Jesus recorded so that we can see and hear and experience as those disciples as those disciples experienced that very day. We pray, Father, that our response would be a response that turns to the Lord Jesus and asks for forgiveness and mercy. And Father, we pray that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see so that we may live for the sake of the kingdom of heaven of which we truly are citizens and not be distracted by the world today. And we pray this in Jesus' name.